It is a privilege to be with you here this morning. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12. I know it's not quite Thanksgiving or pre-Christmas, depending on where you're at. I feel like we get inundated with Christmas stuff. It's, it's now creeping up before Thanksgiving. A number of years ago, there was a, a group, it was actually an atheist group, that had a, they, did, they decided that they were going to declare war on Christmas. They, they had what they called a blasphemy challenge. So here was, here was their press release that they released out of Los Angeles. As part of its ongoing war on Christmas, the Rational Response Squad has launched a $25,000 campaign to entice young people to publicly renounce any belief in the, quote, sky god of Christianity, called the Blasphemy Challenge. This campaign encourages participants to commit what the Christian doctrine calls the only unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an invisible ghost who Christians believe dwells on earth as God's representative. Participants who videotape their blasphemy and upload it to YouTube will receive a free DVD of the hit documentary, The God Who Wasn't There, which normally spells, sells for $24.98 plus tax. The Beyond Belief Media, the distributor of The God Who Wasn't There, has already donated, donated 1,001 DVDs to the Rational Response Squad for the Blasphemy Challenge. More than 100 participants have already blasphemed the Spirit and earned a free DVD during the pre-launch phase of this challenge. While anyone can participate in this challenge, it's focused on particularly a young demographic. To publicize, this challenge has advertised, they've, they've published an online advertising campaign focused on about 25 different popular sites, and they go through and list them, and, and the, the press re release continues. Unfortunately, it's not a joke. Unfortunately, it's not made up. I actually went last night and looked up the URL, and it's still there. Uh, fortunately, not a ton of traffic still. But there's been, at least to me, it feels like a number of notable personalities in the last handful of years that have deconverted from Christianity. People who have written, people who have taught, people who have grown up in Christendom, people who have written things, things that I've, I've read, I've benefited from, and yet these are the people who are now walking away, deconverting from Christianity. Is it possible to, as these atheists contend, is it possible to commit this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Is it possible to sin in such a way or to sin to such a degree that God is unable to forgive it? To answer the question, we look at our text this morning to find out actually what this sin is and what the Spirit says about it. Matthew chapter 12, our text is, we'll pick up in verse 22 and we'll read down through verse 32. Matthew writes, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man can't be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, 
This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit... It shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Is the blasphemy of the Spirit forgivable? Really, the question we're asking is, what is the blasphemy of the Spirit? Because the text is, is pretty clear that blasphemy against the Son, well, God will forgive that. But blasphemy of the Spirit, he's not forgiving. The context, I think, is absolutely critical to understand what it is that Jesus is talking about, who he is talking to. Verse 22, a demon-possessed man comes. But two things are true of this demon-possessed man. He's not just possessed in abstract by being a demon, by being indwelt by a demon. The demon caused him to be both blind and mute. You say, is that important? Well, I think Matthew put it here for a reason. Isaiah chapter 35 verses 4 through 6, is really helpful background for this. Let me read it for you. Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. You could compare this to Mark 12 to, to talk about uh, Psalm 110, a messianic psalm, and how this passage in Isaiah is talking about Messiah. All of the Old Testament points forward toward this coming king. Israel had a lot of problems. They had a lot of sin problems, they had a lot of judges, they had a lot of kings, they had a lot of prophets. And everybody's coming saying, this is what God expects you to do, and they really struggled with it. Until finally the nation falls, and the prophets kept preaching the message of, the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. This is what it's going to be like when the king comes, and he's going to fix all of these problems. What's this king going to do? Well... He's going to open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, the lame will leap, the tongue of the immune, all of the physical maladies that plague people. Their faith wasn't to be in, in medicine properly, but this coming king who is going to fix this all. And so when there's a deaf man who comes, the crowds are amazed. In verse 23, what do the crowds ask? 
this man can't be the son of David, can he? This, it, this isn't the Messiah, is it? I mean, you can, you can almost feel the excitement in this crowd that's murmuring, going, hold on, is, is he really here? Like, is this, is this really the time? This, this is really the son of David? But the Pharisees murmured in their hearts. How do you know it was only in their hearts? Verse 25 tells us, because Jesus knew their hearts and said, a kingdom cannot be divided against itself. You're familiar with verses 26, 27, and 28. What is this blasphemy of the Spirit? I think it, it, it has to be a specific sin, which is to say, it can't just be some gen generic, general, some kind of trespass. There's, there's been plenty of sins that you and I, that as a world, we've all committed, and yet God has forgiven us. The, that interpretation is, is far too broad that I, I actually found a grand total of one commentator who tried to not take that position. It's really, really nobody's there. Um, more people were, were excited that maybe this was a rejection of some specific truth. Like this was something specific that the Spirit did or didn't do or could do, and therefore, if people rejected that, that was this, this blasphemy of the Spirit. Uh, sometimes it, it, this is the, to hear a clear proclamation of the gospel. If you hear this and feel the conviction of the Spirit, and yet you don't repent of your sin, that is to blaspheme the Spirit. But does, does that really fit our context well? Does that, does that really fit the, what these Pharisees are? Because this, this caution is to the Pharisees specifically. Like Jesus knowing their hearts is making the accusation against them. So what are these Pharisees doing that Jesus is really cautioning them, telling them that if they continue in, it will not be forgiven. Some claim that this is the Pharisees labeling good as evil, and evil as good. That the good work that Christ is doing, he's healing this man, he is restoring him, and yet they're saying, well, that's a bad thing. Well, you're doing that through the devil's power. But if that were the case, what would we have to do with somebody like Saul, Paul, who held, at Stephen Stoning, who is the guy in charge? Who is the one holding the cloaks of all the guys throwing the rocks? It was Paul. He was the one who was, in that sense, officiating this stoning. Is that not calling good evil and evil good? And yet we have very clear evidence through our New Testament that Paul was a regenerate believer. So I don't think we can just make it simply the labeling of good is evil. Uh, some like to call this the rejection of the Holy Spirit. And it, it, it's much more difficult to wrestle through were these Pharisees actually under conviction? Hebrews 6 gives us a, a difficult passage to wrestle through. There's, there's five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Warning against people who take their professions of faith, their salvation for granted. That they, they say they are a believer, but really their lives don't fit and don't match. Hebrews chapter 6, 
verse 4 through 6 says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. It's a difficult passage and one that we could, we could preach a whole sermon on separately. But is the author of Hebrews talking about this unpardonable sin? That these Pharisees have experienced the tasted the good word and been partakers of the Holy Spirit. For me, that's, that's enough for me to stop and say that the passage in Hebrews has got to be talking about something else. Have the Pharisees tasted of the heavenly spirit? Have they been made partakers in any way with God? Or in their hard-hearted rebellion, do they hate God? Do they hate the Son of God who is right there in front of them and are doing their dead-level best to deny every scrap of truth that they see? You see, this, this attribution of the works of the Spirit to Satan, I don't think that is the crime, as it were, so much as that evidences their problem. How do you take a good, godly, helpful work like that and say, Satan did that? Like, how hard-hearted do you have to be to think something like that? Do you notice that in verse 25? And knowing their thoughts. Did the Pharisees even have to say this out loud? I think they were blaspheming the Spirit in their head. That they didn't actually utter these words out loud. They didn't say it. I mean, in this crowd, in this climate, in this environment, that would have been very socially unacceptable but they thought it. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, tells them that the, why this cannot be the case, that you cannot have a kingdom that is divided against itself. You can't have a demon, you can't have the devil casting out demons. What kind of kingdom are you going to have if, if there's all this kind of infighting? Like, logically, he's not even in theological. Christ's response to them is purely practical. Like, guys, this is nonsense. This can't work. It, do, it doesn't even make sense what you're thinking. And yet they hold on to it anyway. There's, there's a number of unsatisfactory positions, at least from my perspective, in walking through the text that just that don't quite fit. But I think there's, there's a really good understanding from this text if we read it, and we read it carefully. Verse 23. The crowds were amazed, and what did they wonder? They wondered if this man was Messiah. Was that a reasonable conclusion? Look at verse 28. But if, this is Jesus speaking, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Was the conclusion of the crowds, was that the correct conclusion? Verse 28, I think Jesus is looking at the crowds and saying, you guys are absolutely correct. Keep skipping down. In verse 
32. Whoever speaks against the Spirit, it shall be forgiven him. It shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Why is there all of this kingdom talk? Why are we talking about this coming king, coming kingdom, the age to come, all this stuff? Because this is a major hallmark of Jewish heritage. We are waiting for the king. All the promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, God has to fulfill these promises. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. They're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And when is this going to come? And then Jesus comes, and he starts fulfilling prophecy. After prophecy, after prophecy, after prophecy, after prophecy, after prophecy, after prophecy. And people are starting to get excited, going, hold on! Like, it's, it's like actually him! And though this was the response of the crowd... This was not the response of the Pharisees. What is actually happening in this text? I think these men were disputing the unmistakable, undisputable, irrefutable, miracle-working power of the Holy Spirit that they were denying that Jesus was the clear Messiah. This is, this is not a one-time foolishness. This is not just, this isn't spoken out of arrogance or misconception. The hardness of their heart to see something so clear, to understand that this was God's promise, like this was Messiah, and they were going to go out of their way to deny that to be the case because they didn't want to serve him. Anybody else, they would, they would take anybody else in all of creation, they wouldn't do, they wouldn't worship him. They wouldn't serve him. To get there demonstrates an extreme hardness of heart and lack of any repentance, which is to say, I, I don't think someone who is worried about committing this sin can actually commit this sin. Is there a miracle-working Savior. Is Messiah on earth today proclaiming miracles through his miracles that he is the Son of God? Jesus is in heaven. We're waiting for him. That fact alone, I don't think we can commit the unpardonable sin today. I don't think somebody who says, who may have seen something. So in this crowd, there may have been somebody who looked and said, well, I don't think he really did that. What kind of trick is that? What kind of sleight of hand is that? I don't know about you. I find sleight of hand just absolutely fascinating. Because you sit there and you're looking at it and you're like, I know I didn't just see that. Even though you're convinced you just saw that. Like there's just, there's, there's no way you can take someone and cut them in half and, you know, show two halves of a person and then put them back together and they're all better. Like that's just, that's not how the human circulatory system works. When you cut someone in half, they die. It's, but you're watching it and you're like, surely that's what just happened. And you know that there's a trick to it. Somebody who's looking at the works of Christ here and convinced that this is just a trick, I don't think they're blaspheming the Spirit. The blasphemy of the Spirit is tied to Christ's come, coming, to his return as Messiah, in proclaiming miracles, defending his right to rule. And then looking at that, and saying, I know this, I understand this, and I refuse to submit to it. That is the hardness of the heart that they are engaging in. 
which is where he goes in verse 30 and says, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you are not helping spread the message of the kingdom, if you're not gathering, you're scattering. Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy of the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Son of Man, whoever blasphemes the Son, Jesus, it will be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Why is it that blasphemy against the Son is forgivable and blasphemy against the Spirit is not? Like, aren't they both God? Like, why, why is one forgivable and the other not forgivable? I think we need to be very careful about the, the words that we use. Is Jesus saying that blaspheme the Spirit cannot be forgiven him? Look at verse 32, because I think this is important. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it cannot be forgiven or will not be forgiven. That this shall not happen. Is there a sin that anyone can commit that Jesus cannot forgive? Can you possibly out-sin an omnipotent God? Can you commit so many sins that God cannot forgive them? My answer is unequivocally and unashamedly no. Emphatically no. There is no... For someone to assume that they themselves can somehow out-sin an omnipotent God, I think they presume deity to themselves. To put themselves on par with God, to say, I can do something and God can't do anything about it. As I read my New Testament, that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has all power. All power has been given to me on heaven and earth. Christ can do anything that's consistent with his nature. So for someone to say, I have blasphemed the Spirit, I cannot be saved, I don't think is at all what this text is talking about. It's not saying that they cannot be saved, but they will not be saved. Why would these Pharisees not ever be saved? Understand how hard their heart has to be to look at glorious news like that and attribute that to Satan. To see the unmistakable power of the Holy Spirit and say, well, Satan did that. How hard do you have to be? Like even in our culture, I mean, it's political season and everyone's kind of going back and forth and at each other's throats. There are still a couple of sacrosanct things. When good things happen, even when they happen for the other side, both political parties, they, they kind of wave a little bit of a white flag on, on some of that stuff. Where they have to admit, yeah, that was, that was a good thing. You know, that was nice, that was helpful. Now, back to, and then they go back to their fighting. That's... The blasphemy of the Spirit is not just an idle word. It's not just a one-time mistake. This is a hard-hearted rebellion against the nature and the character of God. As we teach, as we preach, as we evangelize, I think this is encouraging to give our friends, give our family, give our neighbors hope that those who need God can find it. But is, 
as we read this passage, I think there's a temptation for us to, to look at this and say, well, this is them. The those people, the those guys, this is out there. There's another passage in our New Testament that talks about sins not being forgiven. Sometimes people try and equate the two. And I'd like to take the, the time we have remaining this morning to look at that and look at 1 John chapter 5 and look at the sin unto death and ask ourselves, is the sin unto death, is this the blasphemy of the Spirit or is this still yet a different sin? So I'd invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to 1 John chapter 5. Verses 13 through 15 are just kind of extra context. We'll read them, but verses 16 and 17 are the the two we want to focus on. John writes, These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of him. So verses 14 and 15, what context are we in? That as children, verse 13, we know we have eternal life, and verses 14 and 15, that we have confidence that God will hear and answer our requests. So verse 16, So if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, he shall pray, like we just talked about in verses 14 and 15. We, he shall ask, and God will give life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I don't say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Who is the focus in this passage? It's possible in verse 16, that John is talking about an unbeliever, that this, this is a brother, it could be either a brother in fact, or a brother so-called, that this is, this is a true believer that is committing a sin, and the giving of life that John is advocating in verses 16 and 17 is his restoration to faithfulness, that there's a genuine believer who is caught in a trespass. Galatians 6. If you see, as a Christian, if you see a brother caught in a trespass, what does Paul tell the church at Galatians to do? Go to him. If you see a brother caught in a trespass, go to him and confront and work through that issue. It's possible this is what John is talking about. If you see a brother committing a sin, pray and God will give life. In 1 Corinthians, there there are brothers who had sinned, And they sinned so much, they continued in that sin that they were now, Paul's euphemism is, they now sleep. That they died. That they continued in this sin so much that God actually took them out of this world because they lived in sin. It's possible that here, John is talking about a brother who's living in a sin 
and pray that this brother repents before God takes his life, before this sin leads to death. The struggle with that understanding is in this whole book. John doesn't talk about physical life and physical death a single time. The whole book, the whole epistle of 1 John, this whole letter, is written, verse 13, so that people can know they have eternal life. Life and death are always, in this book of 1 John, life and death are always used of eternal life and eternal death. Can a believer, can a true, genuine believer ever suffer eternal death? Nope, impossible. And there's an awful lot of passages we could turn to, don't have the time this morning. We could work through all of them to find out that true believers will always continue in the faith. But in advocating to this book in 1 John 1 and 2, are great examples of this. There are plenty of believers so-called. There are people who come to church with us week in and week out. There are people who make professions of faith. People who say, I love God on Sunday. And then the way they live out the rest of the week, it becomes very evident they do not love God. There are believers who, there are times we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But by God's grace, as 1 John 1 says, we confess our sins. We forsake. And when we repent and confess, what is God faithful to do? To forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the tenor of this book. If we confess, God forgives. But are there brothers who continue to sin and they live in that sin and they refuse to forsake that sin, and despite our prayers, they end up in eternal perdition, that not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, are there Christian fakers out there that put on the facade, that do many of the right things, whose heart is far from God? As a conclusion to John's book, in the tests of eternal life, I think that's exactly what John is calling for. This introspection and this self-examination to say, am I truly in the faith? Who's committing this sin unto death? I think the answer is it's a professing believer. It's, it's not a, a, a flagrant unbeliever. I mean, the text calls him in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing, this is somebody who's in the church, who shows up, who stands up and sits down and sings all the same hymn, hymns as the rest of us. But they are committing a sin leading to death. That there is, there is a pet sin that they are either hiding or they are keeping under wraps, that they are continuing and harboring and holding on to. And they love that sin more than they love their Savior. That's the sin that I think leads to death. There's all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness is sin. John tells us that in verse 17. There is sin that we all commit, some willingly, some unwillingly. There is sins not leading to death. There are believers who sin who will inherit eternal life because they have called on the name of the Lord to be saved. 
in looking at these two passages, I think it's really clear that a person cannot commit a sin that God is unable to forgive. That God can forgive. Any sin you can commit, God can forgive. For us, I think that's really encouraging. As believers, that when we call on the name of the Lord, what has God promised? We will be saved. When we proclaim that message in our community, whether it's the grocery store, whether it's our neighbors, when we offer them the message of the gospel, is it possible that they have sinned, that they blaspheme their spirit? Is it possible that somebody has done something so egregious that God can't forgive them? No. And I think it gives us the boldness and the confidence to offer them the message of salvation, to proclaim the riches of the mercies of the grace of God, and say, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. There's, there's no terms and conditions. Like, have, have you ever seen those commercials about these medications? And then at the end, it sounds like an auctioneer that they speed it up by four times. And, and you're like, I can't even understand that. That's not our gospel. There's no terms. There's no conditions. It's really simple. Call on the name of the Lord and what happens? You will be saved. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Even in 1 John chapter 2, he is the propitiation. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. You cannot cannot outsin God. Your neighbors, your family, you cannot outsin God. To claim more than that is to claim divinity for yourself. Anyone who claims such is filled with pride unless we willingly humble ourselves. Unless they willingly humble themselves, they cannot be saved. So what does that application look like for us? What does this mean? How does this translate? What are we supposed to do? Well, as believers, I think step number one is praise God. Praise God our sins have been forgiven. Not some of them. Not most of them. Not forgiven in part. Not forgiven with strings attached. Not forgiven if we only mean it. Have you ever met people who will forgive you once, sometimes twice, if you're doing really lucky. It's probably a sibling, by the way. A third time they might forgive you. But then after that, they started, well, I'll forgive you if. If you really mean it. If you never do this again. If you promise. If you do for me. Does God attach any of those strings to our salvation? Does God attach any of those strings to our forgiveness? Does he hold that out? Does he hold it over our head? Or does he grant that forgiveness willingly and freely? Praise God for forgiven sins. Secondly, if you have sin, 1 John 1, 9 has the answer. If you confess your sins, God will forgive it. Maybe that's a sin of omission. Maybe that's a sin of commission. Maybe you meant to, maybe you didn't mean to. If you have transgressed the nature and the character of God, you just need to confess. And God has promised to forgive. Believers cannot live in sin. 
Third, the application to believers, I think, is don't be presumptuous upon God. Throughout this book, John warns that we may not actually be what we claim. And just, just a short list of sins that John distills and John brings forward to say people who live in these sins probably are not believers. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride. You know, all those really big, heavy sins. All those sins, those people... Oh, wait, hold on, what? These are sins we commit. These are sins we commit in our heart. Proverbs 6. What are the seven deadly sins? You know, even our world talks about them. A proud look, a lying tongue, murder. Oh, there we go, murder. You know, those really bad ones. Pride, gluttony, lies, murders. Have you ever played the, which one of these is not like the others? Does it feel like that? Well, my, my pride, it's not that bad. My lies, it's just, it's mostly true. Evil, false witnesses, those who spread strife against the brothers. Don't presume upon God to think that your little pet sin, as small and insignificant as it may be, is not important. And fourth, don't fall for the allure of these notable deconversions. These, these people, these individuals who have looked at Christendom, who have stood up, who have taught, who have engaged in and said, I don't believe this anymore. I've looked at it and now I've researched and I've realized the last 25 years of my life have been a lie. Don't fall for the allure. But John's epistle, in particular, Matthew's gospel still, not everybody in that audience was a genuine believer. The Pharisees certainly weren't. In John's audience, not all of these brothers were brothers. In fact, some of them were brothers so-called. The application to unbelievers this morning is really simple. Trust Christ. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved this morning. Leave your sin, leave your pride, leave your selfishness, leave your way, leave yourself and come to Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. That's why we call it good news. Because if you do, if you confess your sin, God will forgive you. He is faithful and just to forgive that sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It is impossible for you. You cannot possibly sin more than God can forgive. If you just repent and trust him, God will forgive your sin. So anyone who wants to push back and say, I'm too bad, I'm too wrong, I've sinned too much, it's been too difficult, I've done all of these bad things, God can forgive. But oftentimes those are the people who realize they're sinners. That's why jail ministries at times can be so effective because those, those are the guys that, you know what, I did wrong. I did do this. But us, we dress up nice and we come to church every day. I can't be that bad. But what does Christ call all of our good deeds? Filthy rags. If we're looking and trusting ourselves for eternal life, it will do us no good. That none of those good things that we do, so-called good things, earn us any merit or any favor before God. The only thing that gets us into heaven 
is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. That is what you have to trust. You cannot sin more than God can forgive. Repent of your sin and trust him this morning. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father God in heaven, we are so grateful for the opportunity we have to gather as your church. Lord, we're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, for the work that he has wrought on our behalf, earning for us righteousness that we have no capacity to earn, dying in our place and giving us eternal life, paying for our sins a payment which we, again, have no capacity to pay. Oh, Father, we have such a privileged position to come before you as your children, to draw boldly before your throne room of grace, as our text said even this morning, that we can bring our requests before you and that you know what we're going to ask even before we do. Father, if there are people here who have not yet surrendered themselves to you and called on the name of the Lord, we ask that you would save them. But Lord, there's more people in our community than are here this morning. There's some who are in other churches and in other places, some providentially hindered, but Lord, there's an awful lot who don't know you, who have never surrendered themselves, who are destined for eternal perdition. Oh, God, save them. Use us to bring them the good news. Lord, let us be faithful in our witness, in our daily walks, in our daily lives, that people would notice and understand that difference, that as we share with them what's really important to us, what really makes us tick, what really we find joy and satisfaction in, that they would long to have that same joy themselves. That they would come to the foot of the cross because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That they would realize that all of the hoopla that they run through each and every day doesn't actually bring any joy or satisfaction. Lord, give them the grace they need to be humble, to leave their sin behind and turn to you. Father, help us to be faithful to do what you have asked us to do, and we will trust you for the results that you accomplish. It's for the name of our great God and Savior we ask this. Amen.